Hello, hello. Welcome to our prayer meeting. I'm so glad y'all are here. I wrote down the wrong event. This is actually Macabre Mansions and Haunted History. I hope you are all in the right place. Yes. We are very excited. We did, I will tell you, a little premature ghost story. We're running a little late, as you may know. We had a microphone that was playing music from an unknown source of a 2007 Black Eyed Peas song. So <laughs> if that's not haunted, I don't know what is. I'm Bryce Mitchell-Williams. For those of you that don't know, this is my co-host, Tammy Merheb Chavez, and we are the hosts of a podcast called Hollyweird Paranormal. And then I'm gonna let everyone kind of introduce themselves. We'll kind of do a bit of a panel discussion. As Dr. Shiloh mentioned, there's water and snacks. And then for anyone that doesn't know, we actually are also doing a tour after this. So for anyone that wants to stay, they'll be taking groups of 15, I believe, through the houses. The Black Eyed Peas will be performing. It's very intimate. <laughs> I can't believe we got them for this, but they're so generous with their time. So I'm gonna pass it down and we're gonna get started. Thanks everyone for being here. Hey everybody, I'm Dr. Scott, Scott Musgrove from LA Not So Confidential. This is my partner, hello, Dr. Shiloh. Hello guys. Take it away. <laughs> yes, if, if you guys are here for one of these other amazing podcasts, we're LA Not So Confidential, we're forensic psychologists and we talk about all of that research. We have a little bit for you in today's story as well, but we also cross over with true crime and Los Angeles in our vintage episodes. We can't really talk about Los Angeles too much with our regular episodes, which is the weirdest thing when people ask us what our show is about, but that's why we made friends with these guys, all of them, because <laughs> they do. But we're so happy you're here. There are a couple Solo chairs, if you guys want to grab them, feel free to move them around. You guys don't have to stay exactly where you're at. Very loosey-goosey tonight. There's a piano bench right there. That'll work, too. What's that? They have to play that. You have to play the piano, though. So, All right. Pass it on to you guys. My name is Daniel Zafrin from L.A. Meekly. That can't be. I can't get the biggest reception. I, I, you must be applauding because I'm the one whose microphone was playing the Black Eyed Peas. Which, on the way here, everyone thought I was crazy for saying my microphone might start playing the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> Nobody believed me it could happen. We want to thank you all for coming. I know there's a lot going on in the city right now, which is why I thought it was a good idea that we titled this event Lakers Nuggets Game 3 Tickets. <laughs> So it really paid off for us. But LA Meekly, if you don't know, we cover Los Angeles history. That's, I, I thought there was going to be more, but that's more, not more to say about it. But for how long have oh, you been? For, we're covered. coming up on 10 years of covering Los Angeles history every single month. The weird, just real quick, the weirdest part about that is literally the only person who was doing a podcast that long ago is also here. Janet Varney did a podcast, is doing a podcast for a million years, too. It was just the two of you guys at the beginning. That was yeah. it. That was it. We used to be mortal enemies, Janet. But now look at us. Okay, I think I'm going to... Are we ready to get started, everybody? Are you? Oh, I'm Greg Gonzalez. Hi. Not the guy from Cigarettes After Sex who has the same name as me and kind of a little bit looks like an icon. Yeah. Are we ready, everybody? That's great. I'm going to try to make this as exciting as possible. I'm here to talk about how you can get rich from drilling oil. Oil is one of the most important elements to Los Angeles becoming a major metropolitan city. The first true strike of oil happens late in the 19th century and it becomes Los Angeles' first industry to boom. 
Fortune chasers flocked to this piece of Southern California, and a sleepy little Pueblo town felt the first big push to becoming a large American city. Oil derricks popped up all over Southern California, ruining the picturesque views of sunny, dreamy Los Angeles, and it's all thanks to one oil tycoon. Edward Doheny was born August 10, 1856, the third of five children raised in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Edward's childhood is fairly normal, aside from the fact that he himself requested to start school sooner than most. He wanted to start when he was four years old. That or that was the parent. That was the lie his parents told when they dropped him off. Like, yeah, he's ready. He, he wants to do this. As a teenager, when many of his peers were leaving school to start jobs, Edward kept attending classes while also taking a part-time job at a sawmill. In 1872, he graduated high school at the age of 15, and a year later, left home to find success in whichever form that would take. At first, it meant odd jobs, which included door-to-door -door salesman, mule driver, fruit packer, gunslinger, singing waiter, and there's rumor that he a pimp and murdered a man in Loretto, Texas. Goes to show you how hard it is to be a singing leader in Texas. A few years out in the mid-1870s, Doheny found himself mining in the Rocky Mountains, hunting for gold and silver. That hunt took him to New Mexico at the Black Range Mountains, north of Lake Valley, where he and four partners made some actual money. At this point, Doheny was strictly a prospector. He himself wasn't mining. He would find land rich with silver, put claims on the land, and then sell them off at high prices to people who were willing to mine it. In 1882, 1883 were very good years for Doheny, putting thousands of dollars in his pocket, and he continued to look for the big score, the big bonanza, if you will. According to the journalist B.C. Forbes, most nights Doheny slept out in the wilderness with his faithful rifle at his side, his six-shooter ready for action, and a hunter's knife at his belt. That guy. Like, it's funny to think that guy looked like Yosemite Sam at some point, and then, like, grew up to be eh, kind of Elmer Fuddish. In 1883, Doheny moves on to Kingston, New Mexico, where he meets Carrie Lou Allen Wilkins, who he marries in August of 83. The next year, baby Eileen joins them. Also in Kingston, he meets a fellow prospector named Charles Canfield, who would become a big deal in his life. And at this time, Edward worked on developing his own claims. He invested with some partners in a new mining company and extended himself as a manager of a few mining outfits. And even with all this, the Dohenies were teetering on the edge of poverty for years in Kingston. After many failed ventures in New Mexico and heeding the advice of many partners and pals, including Char Charlie Canfield, in October of 1891, Edward Doheny decided to pack up and chase the gold rush to California. He didn't bring much money with him. In fact, in, by the fall of 1892, Doheny was flat broke. But he did bring a wealth of skills and practical know-how that would be invaluable to his future venture. Now, in Southern California, oil exploration had been going on for at least like 30 years before Doheny started digging around Los Angeles. By the 1880s, there was 100 oil-producing wells operating around the city. There was a man named W.A. Goodyear who wrote a, a report for the California State Mining Bureau in 1888 listing every known oil well in the state. This would be Doheny's guide, and his fortune was truly thanks to the valuable information he found in this report. Now, Doheny and his family were living in a cheap motel on the west side. I couldn't really figure out where. And one day, he saw a wagon with the wheels covered in an oil-like substance we now recognize as tar. He talked to the driver and found out that the material came from a spot near Westlake Park, which we now know as MacArthur Park. Doheny went over to Westlake Park and saw the oil coming out of the ground. And usually at MacArthur Park, you'll find black tar heroin, but this time they just found black tar. <laughs> if it doesn't have a roof, it's not a church. <laughs>
That's how they got the light. Let there be light. There's a hole in the church. Doheny saw the black gold, and supposedly he knew he was going to make a fortune from it. Now, through the years of working in different fields and seeing how different industries with heavy machinery requires oil and fuel, he knew this substance could be sold, and here it was bubbling up from the ground. So he partnered up with Canfield and found a cheap property on the outskirts of downtown LA since they couldn't afford anything in Westlake Park which it's all of LA now. The spot they leased was in Echo Park off Glendale Boulevard at Colton and Patton Street, in particular, 1419 Colton Street by the indoor Echo Park deep pool, which, by the way, makes me think that when they were done drilling oil, did they just fill the hole with chlorine water and like, go swim? Anyways, Doheny and Canfield used their skills as miners to seek oil from saturated ground. It took 38 days using hand tools, Doheny digging with a shovel and Canfield moving debris with a windlass before they struck oil 155 feet deep into the earth. This was November of 1892, and once they struck it, they began pumping out seven barrels a day by hand. At this point, Canfield wasn't convinced the oil was the future and kind of bailed out, you know, went back to mining in the mountains. And Doheny, with some new partners, drilled 30 feet deeper, and it hit a point where they had a good amount of oil flow. This is considered to be the first successful oil strike in Los Angeles, with successful, you know, underlined, bolded, italicized. From the book Oil Baron of the Southwest, Martin Ansel writes about Doheny, saying, he was not the first person to extract oil in the city. He was certainly not the first person to experiment with the petroleum he found near Westlake Park, but he was the first person who managed successfully to promote its use at the precise moment that the railroads and other industries recognized oil as a viable fuel. Anyways, within the same year, word had gotten out about the oil near the well, and nine other oil drilling operations started up this, in the surrounding area. Doheny and his partner, Henry Aylman, had two of them. And from there, Doheny continued to push forward and take every win he could scrounge up and use that towards a bigger win. Uh, like selling oil to factories and using the money to pay for bigger pieces of land to drill for oil and then continually hitting jackpots this way. Tragedy hit Doheny in December of 1892 when his young daughter Eileen died from complications due to rheumatic fever. The next year, the still grieving parents welcomed their son, Edward Jr., or as they would call him, Ned, that's Ned there, in 1899, Daddy Doheny started chatting it up with a telephone operator at his company, a woman who had the same name as his wife. So he called this Carrie by her middle name, which was Estelle. So who knows if there was like hanky-panky or possibly canoodling going on. But later, Edward and Carrie got a divorce after years of dealing with a rocky relationship. Custody of six-year-old Ned was awarded to Edward, and Carrie was so distraught that the following year she committed suicide. Not long after, Edward would marry Estelle, and she would raise Ned as her own son. That was either 1900 or 1901, the year that Doheny became a millionaire. By this time, he had 19 of the 155 oil wells in the city, and his companies could pump 350 barrels a day. His closest competitors could only do like half of that. Now, after the success in LA in May of 1900, Canfield and Doheny ventured together along the Mexican Central Railroad prospecting for oil. Near Tampico, Mexico, they found an area so abundant in oil deposits that they bought 400,000 acres of land and paid upwards of a million dollars building a pipeline before they even knew if there was enough to warrant building a pipeline. It was a gamble, but it paid off as the Cassiano Field owned by Doheny Canfield is remembered as one of the most prosperous wells of all time. They pumped out 70,000 barrels of oil a day and it produced enough oil for the partners to pump out for nine years. When that milkshake was drank, it produced 800,000 barrels of oil. Doheny and company went on to strike wells in New Mexico and Peru, and he expanded his land in Mexico, buying up 1.6 million acres for industrial development. Doheny had one of the largest fleet of oil tankers in the world, and he was so rich at this point that during the Mexican Revolution of 1910, Doheny was able to afford to hire a private ar army to protect his oil wells, which lets you know what side of the Mexican Revolution he was on. <laughs> 
1919, Doheny had drilled thousands of wells and controlled many oil companies fit to handle productions, most of which were, at this point, consolidated into the Pan American Petroleum Company. It's now 1920, and Edward Doheny was one of the wealthiest men in America, with a fortune estimated at $150 million, which today is $2.2 billion. By 1925, Doheny would be richer than John D. Rockefeller, who was alive at the time and did not take the news very well. He also transcended into legendary villain territory when he became the enemy-slash-fictionalized subject of Upton Sinclair, who wrote his book Oil, partly based on Doheny and a scandal that has tarnished Doheny's legacy. We're, not, we're now going to talk about the Teapot Dome scandal, which sounds so much more grand than what it actually is, which is just like bribing the U.S. government for land. We've all done it. <laughs> What's the big deal? Do Doheny wanted to curry favor with the federal government to get rights to drill for oil in Kern County at Elk Elks Hills and Buena Vista Hills near Bakersfield. This land was owned by the U.S. Navy, and this contract would allow him to supply oil to the military in Pearl Harbor. Now, he sent Ned and his personal chauffeur, Theodore Hugh Plunkett, to the Washington Hotel in Washington Hotel, D.C., to hand-deliver a briefcase full of $100,000 cash to the Secretary of Interior, Albert Bacon Fall, to convince him to give in to the contract. In 1924, this scandal broke and was one of the key events of what became known as the Teapot Dome Scandal. Why is it called the Teapot Dome Scandal? Well, the other man involved in the scandal was Harry F. Sinclair of Sinclair Dino Oil, it's the one with the dinosaur, which did a similar deal with Fall for land in Teapot Dome, Wyoming, which is where the name comes from. It's not just because it was a name they threw at Daniel in high, you know, high school and he has not forgot it since. I bring up the Teapot Dome scandal so much. This is it's worse than the Teapot Dome scandal. You don't even know. <laughs> My favorite scandal. <laughs> in Wyoming, or whatever, or whatever you said, because I don't remember anything but the name. Doheny, Ned, and Plunkett were all in, <laughs> indicted, but were eventually acquitted of any charges. The only one to face any consequences was Albert Bacon Fall, who took the Bacon Fall for all this. Doheny returned to L.A. and was greeted by 400 supporters and the mayor who called him, quote, a great American patriot. You're such a hero for bribing that man. Nevertheless, this scandal ate away at Doheny, who was now in his late 60s. By 1925, he started to slow down and centralize his holdings. He created the role of vice president and general manager for his son, Ned. There he is. Now, you know he's an oil man now because he has a mustache. Ned was on his way to the top at this point. He got married at the age of 20 and attended USC around the same time where he earned a degree in business and was later elected to the board of trustees and as president of the Alumni Association. After serving as a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy during World War I, he joined the family oil business as company vice president. Classic Nepo baby stuff. <laughs> Around town, he was sort of the rich type that was like famous for being famous, like a, like a Kardashian, like, not Kim though, like Chloe. <laughs> like a lesser. From this trial, Edward Doheny was acquitted of the bribery charge, but was ordered by the courts to repay $47 million in settlements, taxes, and penalties. He was drowning in lawsuits by stockholders and his companies, and he became a reclusive invalid at his house at 8 Chester Place near USC for the last three years of his life, which would end in September of 1935. One of the biggest titans of industry in Los Angeles died with two stains of scandal on his name, the Teapot Dome scandal and a murder. But first, let's talk about a certain facility. Yeah, let's talk about the murder facility. <laughs> so now before we hand it off to LA Not So Confidential to take us to the scene of the crime, let's focus for a bit on everyone's favorite part of a crime scene, the scene, this beautiful setting. So before they talk about the Doheny scandal that wasn't the Teapot Dome scandal, let's talk about the Doheny Mansion. That's not the place called the Doheny Mansion. That's a different mansion that Doheny's lived in near USC. We're talking Greystone Mansion, as you see right there. Ooh. 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 
So, what, are the Black Eyed Peas here or something? <laughs> so, so after all the Teapot Dome stuff, after putting his own son at risk of going to federal prison because he didn't want to go to federal prison himself, Doheny Sr. made it up to his son the only way the richest dad in America knew how. He built him a big-ass house, the one that you see there. As big a house as money could buy your son's love. This was 1926, and construction began on a 12-and-a-half-acre plot of land in Beverly Hills designed by Gordon Kaufman, who's the guy who designed the Hollywood Palladium. Oh, I can't do what Greg didn't do. I can't do it You're either. You're getting kicked I'm just, out of the black-eyed peas now. I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm going to say click, and when I say click, everyone look at the screen and pretend <laughs> that I clicked it. So that's the Hollywood Palladium. He, this guy, Gordon Kaufman, also did the second most recent LA Times building, click. <laughs> Santa Anita Park, click. Yeah, that's my, that's my favorite park in Santa Anita. <laughs> and the exterior of the Hoover Dam, click, which in my opinion is the best part of the Hoover Dam. I love the exterior. Ooh. The job was a toss-up between Kaufman and Wallace Neff of Pickfair fame, click, but Doheny made them compete against each other for this job to the death. <laughs> I don't have a slide for that, and also that didn't happen. What ended up being built was a Tudor-style mega-mansion with 55 livable rooms, a grand staircase hand-carved out of oak, click, black and white marble floors, seven different fireplaces, each designed by a different artist, click, 18-foot-tall windows with views all the way from downtown to the ocean, click, a toilet, click. <laughs> Just one. Just one. How many do you have? I mean, I have... I have 55 rooms myself and one toilet. Uh, he, he also, there was a private 30-seat movie theater, click. A bowling alley, click, which will mm. come, in, come up later. A billiards room, click. A massage room, click. A gym, a walk-in jewelry vault, a bed. <laughs> Did I say premature, click? Premature click. <laughs> I, I will never forget this. <laughs> this is the worst thing you've done to me since putting the black eyed peas on my microphone in front of everybody. I have a feeling this slide was a punchline. <laughs> oh, it's a line. I don't know if it has a punch. There was a temperature controlled wine cellar, a bar that retracted into the wall at the push of a button because it was prohibition. Click. Oh. Uh, <laughs> keep going forward, yeah. There, that is the bar that will, there's no old man in this picture. Well, I've hidden an old man in each picture and whoever can find it. <laughs> A room used just for wrapping gifts that I couldn't find a picture of, so here's a picture of some kid wrapping. Click. <laughs> Secret passageways, walls of leaded glass, servants' quarters for their staff of 15 to live there, including two telephone operators and 10 gardeners, which keep the telephone operators away from this guy, away from his dad. <laughs> oh, boy, can't get enough of them. Which leads us to the gardens of this place. We can get away from this kid now. This, these gardens, my God. When the guy who designed it asked Doheny Sr. what should be in these gardens that would please his son and his wife, he told them, give them everything, and everything they were given. It had stables, click, a gatehouse, click, a swimming pool, click, a greenhouse, click, a garage for their 10 cars, complete with their own gas pumps and mechanic shop. Oh, you're ahead of me. <laughs> I, couldn't I couldn't find pictures of the next one, so here's the rapping kid again. <laughs> Kennels, tennis courts, its own fire station, a lake with an 80-foot waterfall, babbling brooks, and the one thing that would buy any son's love, the world's largest sprinkler system. Click. <laughs> In all, click, 
The house itself was just over 46,000 square feet with a roof of Welsh slate and walls of Indiana limestone, AKA our old boxing nicknames. <laughs> <laughs> now the name for this house, it's really interesting. You see, they called it Greystone Mansion because the stones they used to build it were gray. <laughs> if you can no follow picture? the thread, I don't know. <laughs> Let's go back to the old man in the bed. Don't do that. <laughs> do not do that. <laughs> it was it was the biggest house in Los Angeles and second biggest in the state behind Hearst Castle. It cost just over $3 million, and when it was built, it was the most expensive home in California, which today puts it at 400 millionth overall. <laughs> Ned and his wife and kids moved in in September 1928 while construction was still going on, but this place was meant to be an oasis of seclusion from a world that he had kind of screwed up his place in. That's why it was so self-contained, so he wouldn't really have to set foot back in this world that he made a fool of himself, <laughs> as anyone who bribes the government clearly does. They're never welcome back in society. <laughs> Many years later, in 1955, the house was sold to the guy who owned the Empire State Building, shown here. From 1968 to 82, it housed the American Film Institute, and the grounds are now a public park, and is on the National Register of Historic Places. But none of this means anything to all of you, so to connect you all to this place in a more meaningful way, here's some movies that it's been in. The Big Lebowski. You can just click after each one. The Best Spider-Man. Boo. <laughs> hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Rush Hour. What, no applause for Rush Hour? Thank you. My God. It's like people don't understand. I'm not even going to finish that sentence. The Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah. Ghostbusters 2. Stripes. The Witches of Eastwick. Death Becomes Her. Batman and Robin. <laughs> Everybody just throws up when I say Batman and Robin. Eraserhead. X-Men. Columbo, <laughs> Gilmore Girls, ah. and of course, There Will Be Blood. So let's make our second There Will Be Blood reference tonight and drink our milkshakes and hear what LA Not So Confidential has to say about what happened at this place. All right, we ready for the crime? And we only have like five pictures. There will be none of this clicking. Do you want me to click them for you? No, we're good. <laughs> Dr. Scott, why don't you start? Okay, so we're going to lead you on a little journey about a relationship that didn't end up very well. So there's very little documented history about the friendship between Ned Doheny and Hugh Plunkett, and actually very little history at all on Hugh. And this in itself might be very, very telling of who was kept close to the family, in what way, and how important it was to really keep up appearances when you have this much money and this much power in a major metropolitan area. So there were a lot of secrets going on in this big old house. So it appears that Hugh was born in Illinois and married his wife. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of clues already. He married a woman named Harriet. That's a clue. It'll come up later. Oh, thank you but he was also in the Navy, <laughs> right? So we got another clue going on here. He was in a submarine chase during World War I. His draft card was from June of 1917, and it shows an address in the Adams Normandy area of Los Angeles, and his occupation then was chauffeur for Mr. Doheny. So 
been in the Navy, now he's a chauffeur and has a wife named Harriet. I mean, you can see where we're going with this, right? Okay. <laughs> By the time the crime in question occurred, Hugh was 33 years old and he had been employed by the Doheny family for over 16 years. Therefore, he and Ned likely met while they were teenagers. Hugh reportedly started out as a stenographer, another clue, right? <laughs> for the elder Doheny in the offices of the Metro Mexican Petroleum Company, eventually rising to the role of Ned's personal secretary and most trusted friend. This is kind of like, I don't know. Is this gay bingo? I, it's kind of, <laughs> like we're, we're, we're really hitting a lot of squares here. Because if you're like, remember, like there was a recent excavation, I think of Queen Hatshepsut's tomb in Egypt, and they found her hairdressers that were buried together and they were supposed to be really good friends. And it's like, okay, can we just be open about this? Come on, something's going on between Hugh and his employer. So Hugh made several business trips along with Ned, including out of the country to Mexico and then way beyond for the Pan American petroleum business. And Hugh was separated from his wife, Harriet, in August, 1927. We should all like take a moment and feel bad for Harriet. They had no children. Divorce was granted to his wife in October of 1928 on the grounds of desertion. And with, we also know that by 1929, he was then living in an apartment alone. All right, so we're tracking so far. This is Ned, Ned Jr., Doheny's son, and then Hugh Plunkett is the one that Dr. Scott just gave us his background on. So as Greystone was being constructed, Ned and Lucy were in and out of town a lot because the teapot dome scandal was happening. And so Hugh stayed behind and he actually, can I use the air quotes like you, oversaw much of the construction <laughs> process. What are these um, euphemisms? I don't it's all, this is all, who, what are we talking about? That's here? my last one, I promise. I'm just kidding. So he actually stayed behind, oversaw a lot of the construction process. Every once in a while when Estelle, the elder Mrs. Doheny, would have to go back to Washington, he would escort her back there kind of as her bodyguard, if you will, as she was listening to the trial. But pretty much he stayed behind. He was writing checks in Ned Doheny's name to pay for the bills and pay for the house to be completed. And as the home was nearing completion in the fall of 1928, Hugh started to experience some what they called emotional problems at the time. So the family physician, very important character in the story, was Dr. Fishbaugh. And he had treated him for over a year and described him as intensely nervous. So there's a lot of very vague terms as to what the heck is going on with him. Is this but still a euphemism? No. <laughs> euphemism for mental health issues, perhaps. But apparently there were a good number of stressors going on in his life. He was addicted to sleep medication. He was undergoing, about to undergo some dental work. He was having some problems with his teeth. He had an upcoming surgery for his tonsils that was happening, you know, or all of sort of this peripheral stuff, as well as the marriage falling apart. But it was never really reported, even in the papers, that Ned and Hugh had been called to testify in these trials. And although Ned had been given immunity, Hugh had not. So I'd be really nervous, too, if this very rich family who had employed me for a long time we're all going to kind of 
you know, get away with this and it was going to end up falling on somebody else, but yet you hadn't been officially given immunity. So with all of this going on, Ned and his wife Lucy move into the house with their family, five kids, just in time for the holidays. And their holiday Christmas party was full on, you know, oil, money, great Gatsby type stuff. 30 foot Christmas tree. She... She had a room dedicated to wrapping presents. Like any mom in here is probably like, what? Can that's, I have that? That's the spellings. The spellings are famous for the gift oh, wrapping room. Oh, that's right. right. That's right. That's where she stole it from was yeah. Lucy Doheny. <laughs> Do How unoriginal. Do you want the kid back? Do you want no, to go no, back no, no, to the no, wrapping no. kid? <laughs> we're good. We're good. We're good. So they threw this Christmas party. It had a hundred couples dancing to an orchestra playing Christmas music. And this was the night that Hugh had a really bad nervous breakdown to where the doctor, Dr. Fishbaugh, had to start treating him again. And he lived in the Doheny house for about three weeks while he was sort of trying to recover from whatever was going on. So by February of 1929, the Dohenys claim Hugh was completely unhinged a boy that actually lived in the same apartment complex as him was interviewed, and he said that basically he was walking around at all hours of the day and night, slamming doors, slamming spoons down on a table, which is very specific, and throwing knives inside of his apartment. So you have you do have the sort of testimony of some of the people he knew well, but also some witness accounts of how he was acting pretty erratic inside of his home at this time. I'm, I'm really not sure about the significance of the spoons within the gay community. I'm just trying to, okay. I, I mean, in my, in my experience, we've just, <laughs> spoons have never played a big part of our, knives maybe, but not spoons. Slamming spoons um, sound, sounds like a euphemism for doing heroin. I'm, oh. I'm slamming spoons here. Let's, oh, spooning? Is that, okay, maybe. So on February 16th, 1929, in the early evening, Ned, Lucy, and Dr. Fishbow went to visit Hugh at his apartment. And they were essentially going to attempt some sort of intervention, which was probably pre before this, this term was even used. But they were going to urge him to take a rest. Let me use air quotes again, take a rest at a sanitarium. And during this visit, Ned supposedly uttered some impulsive remarks that upset Hugh and Dr. Fishbow later stated, Hugh refused. He simply sat there, almost shaking at times, hands clenched, jaw set. He said he would come out of it all right. I could see it was no use to push him further, and so I left. Ned and Lucy also left Hugh's apartment and went to the theater and afterwards returned to Greystone. At some point, Ned called Dr. Fishbow and expressed that he was in fear of Hugh, asking if he could come to Greystone in the case that he showed up. At about 10 p.m., as they were getting ready to turn in for the night, Hugh called. He was on the property, at the garage at the gates of Greystone, and he wanted to come into the mansion. Lucy answered and told him it was too late for his visit and turned him away. However, Hugh, of course, having run all of Greystone, had keys to the mansion, and a little while later, he let himself in. Ned and Lucy were still up while their children slept. Now, Ned knew that the doctor was on his way, and he went to the guest room where Hugh slept when he stayed over to try and comfort his very upset friend. So he realizes 
He's here. He's not going to leave. He's made himself into the house. I'm going to have to try and de-escalate this situation to the best of my ability. They spent the better part of an hour drinking and smoking cigarettes while Lucy was in another part of the house. So once again, we have some historical context or interviews and Dr. Fishbaugh was later quoted as saying, I received a call at the Hollywood Playhouse from my maid at 10.30 p.m. and was told to go to the Doheny home immediately. Upon my arrival there, one of the watchmen, whose name I do not know, let me in the house. As I entered, Miss Doheny was standing in the middle hallway approximately eight feet back from the door and she greeted me. She said her husband was in a guest room on the first floor to the left of the hall, leading from the front entrance. Both Mrs. Doheny and I started down the hall side by side. A door which partitions the hall was slightly ajar and I saw Plunkett walking toward it. You stay out of there, he shouted at me and he slammed the door shut. I then heard a shot. You go back, I told Ms. Doheny, and she returned to the living room, which was about 75 feet away from the guest room, which is like, it's like, a, like a third of a football field or something. <laughs> go, go rest over there. I pushed the door open and saw Plunkett lying on his face opposite the door to the bedroom, where I later found Mr. Doheny. Plunkett, to the best of my recollection, was fully clothed. The door to the bedroom was open, and when I looked in, I saw Mr. Doheny lying on his back a chair overturned between him and the bed. And in regards to Hugh's behaviors and motivations, the doctor then commented, I believe Mr. Plunkett was insane, but I do not know what caused the derangement. He was not overworked and would never tell me what, if anything, was preying on his mind. To the best of my re recollection, was fully clothed. <laughs> right, to the best of my recollection. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to remember. <laughs> it's so difficult it's to remember, but she went 75 feet away. <laughs> Selective right. memory there. So we have some crime scene photos here. They're very old and black and white, so they're not terribly gruesome in my opinion, but also my opinion <laughs> could be very scared. <laughs> so both men had been shot in the head and were dead. Lucy and the doctor called Lucy's brother-in-laws and the Beverly Hills Police Department and the Los Angeles district attorney at the time, Burton Fitz. So after the men were found dead, old E.L. Doheny was also called. He was awoken at his home on Chester Place, rushed to the scene, and everybody basically warned him not to go in there, but he wanted to see his son. And upon entering the room to identify now his only son, remember he had the loss of his daughter, one of his wives, the first wife, had died by suicide. Yeah. So he's elderly by this time, in really bad shape. He collapses at the scene, so it's very dramatic. But after reconstructing the crime scene, the it wouldn't have been Beverly Hills PD. So this was actually the first murder for Beverly Hills because they had just been incorporated as a city. So the DA's office and their officials, the LA officials, actually reconstructed the crime and determined that Ned was shot in the temple while sitting in a chair near the bed in the guest room, and the chair was turned over near the body, which I know is hard to see. So the first picture is the crime scene photo. The next picture is a crime scene photo from a different angle with kind of like drawings of where they think they were sitting when the crime took place. But just, I want to hit home. If you're a brand new police department like Beverly Hills PD at the time, calling the officials that have the experience to do it is exactly what you're supposed to do, right? So just, if anyone wants to tell Boulder PD that. For, for those of you that don't know Dr. Shiloh very well, she's obsessed with Jean-Benet Rapsi <laughs> and that entire case. Rightfully yes, so. Yes, right? we, got, yeah. we got some people here that right? get it, right? Right? I mean, come on. Come on. And they're... <laughs> Never mind. Okay. <laughs> Take a breath. Take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Surprise, Jumping and Ramsey. <laughs> All right. So let's go to this next photo of these two gentlemen looking at the gun. And I want to read you the caption underneath this photo. It's from February 18th, 1929, which is two days after this crime occurred. And it reads, LT White left fingerprint expert of the district attorney's office and Ed King investigator are pictured examining the old-fashioned Bisley model 45 caliber gun with which Theodore Plunkett killed Edward L. Doheny Jr. and himself. So the Bisley model is made by Colt, if anyone's interested in that. So in the aftermath, DA Fitz decided not to open a full inquest into this, closing the case very quickly, stating that the case was conclusively one of murder and suicide, and that the only official action would be an autopsy and examination of Plunkett's head. So why that is, is because they found gunpowder on the temple of Ned. So they realized, okay, he had been shot at pretty close range, but they didn't find any on Plunkett who had put the gun up to his forehead when he died by suicide. And so what they were saying is that because he probably pushed the gun so close to his head to ensure that he died, that the gunpowder would be more internal, if you will. So they just wanted to make sure that, that you, as you can imagine, this time rumors were already running wild. So they wanted to squash a lot of that by looking at the autopsy reports. So County Surgeon Frank Wagner determined that after examination that Plunkett, yes, had definitely killed himself. The firearm, however, belonged to Doheny. So interviews were also conducted with the house staff. A maid reported that she overheard the men raising their voices and heard Plunkett threaten to take his own life. And Ned was heard telling Hugh, come on, just get to bed, basically in an attempt to sort of wrap it up for the night or at least until the doctor could get there. Dr. Shiloh and I, in our podcast, Ellie Not So Confidential, once a month, one of our episodes is a vintage crime. And generally, we like to stay within the Southern California or LA area. And one of the things that we always say about covering these vintage crimes is that you will get cases from 50 years ago that have incredible, incredible amounts of evidence. And then you'll get cases with barely any record of history and it's all conjecture. It's all like a game of telephone. We'll get research articles from one source. We'll get newspaper articles from one source. We'll get interviews from someone else. And all of the data gets very conflicted. So as many jokes as I was making about the potential relationship between these two men, we really don't know because the role of servants to the wealthy and powerful at that time in history was very different. So this person may very well have been considered part of the family. And as Dr. Shiloh was saying, looked like he was about to be set up to be the patsy to take the heat for all of these crimes that had occurred. So all we know is that from the interviews that were done is this was a very, very fragile individual at this time with a lot of pressure on him. And there's a lot of work that goes into research. And the more you look at something, the wilder it can get. There's a conspiracy theories, questions, everything starts flying around. For instance, the contemporary articles will ask, well, why did Lucy call the family doctor and not the police? Well, maybe because of scandal. She wanted to address the scene before the police got involved, before the papers got involved, any number of reasons. But even now, I myself and can making conjecture about this. And if you go to newspaper reports in the days after, the real information is right there. Ned called the doctor earlier because he was fearing that he would show up and didn't even know that he was actually already on his way at the time. 
So having said that, there are very few firsthand accounts of Lucy's reports of what happened that night, and most of the narrative now is commandeered by Dr. Fishbaugh, who suddenly sort of is like the spokesperson for the family after all of this goes down, right? He acted as a representative for the family and really had most of the knowledge, the knowledge, quote unquote, mm. of what had been going on with Hugh, even though that sounds like it's a, just a not so confidential client-patient relationship, right? Yeah, but the rules are really very different when you have money, probably. Exactly, exactly. Some reports state that the police weren't called until two in the morning, which was hours after the shootings actually occurred. Other rumors started about Hugh's gunshot wound being to the back of his head, in the back. But again, if you go back to the original source that we cited earlier, officials reported that the coroner would be looking at the wound to the forehead. So there were actually legitimate dissenting voices all throughout this investigation. And it was reported that the forensic investigator named Leslie White doubted this very, very convenient story of a murder-suicide. And so while he was processing and photographing the scene, White found a smoldering cigarette in Hugh's fingertips, a detail that he found very curious for a man who had just killed his best friend in a fit of madness and then was about to kill himself. By the time the police got to the scene, the gun used in the murder lay under Plunkett's body and it was very warm, as if someone had it heated in the oven. Apparently, Dr. Fishbaugh was caught in several different stories, including withholding the fact that Ned had actually been alive when the doctor burst into the room, breathing, although he was already unconscious. So at first, Dr. Fishbaugh, who had been called before the police, said that he hadn't touched the crime scene at all. Later, he changed his story, saying that he had moved Ned in an attempt to revive him, and when that failed, he put him back on the floor. <laughs> Oh, he may not be dead, so let me move him here to do some CPR. Well, that didn't work. He's dead. Let me move him back to where he was before. I just That makes no sense. The final conspiracy started when the men were actually laid to rest. The Doheny family was very, very Catholic, very devout, and Ned was not buried in the family cemetery, Los Angeles Catholic Calvary Cemetery, leading many people to believe that the family knew the truth that he had been actually the one to die by suicide, either in a suicide pact or after shooting Hugh first. And last but not least, much, much less fleshed out by history or evidence, another alternative shooting theory is that Lucy herself was finally fed up with Ned and Hugh's romantic relationship, sorry, best friend's relationship, <laughs> and she was the one that shot them both, which would lead credence to the cigarette lit still in his hand. Good for her. <laughs> well, she stayed living there for a very long time. <laughs> so with that little mic drop, let's just talk about research real quick as far as murder-suicides go. I think it's interesting to look at the dynamics here and try to determine from which perspective we might want to frame this. Is this a murder-suicide between business partners mm. or friends or lovers or what's going on here? So the Violence Policy Center is really the only entity that has ever started tracking such incidents and publishing the data that they have derived mainly from media coverage, which isn't the best that we like for research, but at least it's something. Mm. There's still no law enforcement database to systematically capture 
the factors of a murder-suicide. So their report published in 2020 found that the situations almost always involve a man using a firearm. Currently, there are 11 murder-suicides each week in the U.S., and 10 out of these 11 perpetrators use a firearm. And this stat is consistent all the way back to 1950. So the majority of these incidents, two-thirds, involve an intimate partner. So... I think that's really important to say the majority involve an intimate partner. However, of course, 95% of those, the victims are women. Mm. When we look at homicide in general, the majority, 91% are committed by men and another man is usually their victim. So that tracks with this case and kind of applies to that. However, when we look at the research on murder-suicide, where we see a male perpetrator seeking out a male victim, it's incredibly rare. So I don't know what to make of that. We can look at that in a couple different directions. I think there, we know there's outliers everywhere in criminal activity. If we go by the known research and notwithstanding any other motive that we just don't know about, I don't think Dr. Scott and I mind making the assumption that the relationship between Ned and Hugh at the very least was very emotionally intimate or we have this other factor of his nervous breakdown, right? Was that a factor? Well, again, if we look at the research, as anyone who listens to our show knows, without any other factors present, individuals who are suffering from a mental health disorder are less likely to act out violently. They're actually more likely to act out violently against themselves rather than anybody else and much, much more likely to be victims themselves. So... Last little note here, interestingly, a couple of photographs that I had found associated with Ned Doheny and the case and the home are archived in a collection called the One Archives at USC Libraries. And they're... God. I think we might know how the Laker game went. Oh, <laughs> I was like, did a tire blow twice? Yeah. What? Well, okay. tires it could be for the library. You don't know. <laughs> I mean, oh I didn't even get to the good part. Okay, so the, the photos associated with Ned and the house are actually sub-labeled in a collection called One National Gay and Lesbian Archives Murders GLBT Related. Hmm. So someone took the, someone took <laughs> the, the step right? to uh, categorize it there. So Ned was buried at Forest Lawn Glendale in what's known as the Temple of Santa Sabina. The 16th century marble canopy over his sarcophagus came from the Santa Sabina Basilica in Rome and was said to have been a sympathy gift from Pope Pius XI. The very next day, Hugh was buried only 100 feet away from Ned on Sunrise Slope. Lucy Doheny sent a huge floral arrangement to Plunkett's funeral, and two of her brothers served as pallbearers. As expected, there was a huge explosion of coverage in the local papers, but that really only lasted about three days, probably due to the fact that this was very quickly deemed a closed case by the DA's office, as well as the possibility that money may have been involved to shut down the media focus on the case. Lucy herself continued living at Greystone with her five children. She married investment dealer Lee Batson in 1932 in front of the living room fireplace at Greystone. After the children were grown, Lucy and Lee found the giant estate burdensome and too large. Lucy then sold it in 1955. In 1965, Greystone was bought by the city of Beverly Hills. So rumors of a love affair between the two men, a cover-up and bribes still linger to this day. Tammy, are you going to talk about the eraser head sightings, ghost sightings, or can I? We'll get into that later, but there is a famous family that actually brought up the fact that there are ghosts in the mansion. Bryce and I love this family very much, especially the patriarch. 
<laughs> rhymes with the Schmiltons, but uh, but yeah, there is a reference of the ghosts that linger on the Greystone Manor. Do you property. mind if I cover the ones from Eraserhead Absolutely. real, right real quick? Yeah. I'm just a huge David Lynch fan, so I wanted to <laughs> very quickly step on your territory, Tammy. I'll, I promise I'll stay in my lane after this. It's, um, it's okay. an amoosh boosh. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> so as Daniel let us know, Eraserhead was filmed in 1977 at Greystone when AFI had control of the property. This was the film debut of David Lynch, if you guys aren't familiar, starring Jack Nance and Charlotte Stewart. It's the story of Henry Spencer trying to survive his industrial environment, his angry girlfriend, and the unbearable screams of his newly born mutant child. So please watch it. You'll thank me later or totally hate me later. So a very big thanks to one of our listeners, John, for sending us some resources on Greystone Mansion and Eraserhead. He directed us to a documentary video on YouTube called Eraserhead Stories. And essentially it's just video recording of David Lynch talking about the making of this film. But in that, he talks about two sightings of Doheny's ghost during the making of the film. So Ron Barth was the projectionist. So they had the movie theater screening room at the house that they used during this time. And he was also the night watchman at the house. So he would fall asleep on the couch. And one night he woke up and saw Doheny on the stairs, dressed in his bathrobe, and then he disappeared. The other account is from the star Jack Nance. So he was the lead in Eraserhead. And he had wandered down. There's a little like courtyard area where David Lynch had built one of the sets for the woman in the radiator, if you guys know what I'm talking about. So there's a little entryway into the basement that goes through the area where the laundry room was. So Jack Nance goes down there into the basement to take a nap one day. And I think you're kind of asking for it if that's what you decide to do. <laughs> but in between shoots, he went to go down there and sleep. And he was also awakened by the same exact figure of Doheny in his bathrobe just standing there watching people sleep. So with that, we're going to take it, give it over to Hollywood Paranormal. Let's talk about some gay ghosts, y'all. I know, gay ghosts. Here we go. <laughs> like, everyone on the right is, like, research-based and, like, really did their work. And I am conjecture-based and queer-coded. So, like, we're just going to go from there. Yeah. I grab the clicker. So when there's history and blood and crime, is there a possibility that a paranormal residue is left behind? Yes. We find plenty of them. Go to West Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> and for this matter, the Greystone Mansion is definitely one of those places. As you heard Dr. Shiloh talk about Eraserhead, there's been plenty of film, television, and shows that have been shot at this location and tons of stories of crewmen, cameramen, ADs, and directors who have seen full-body apparitions of the Doheny family. Real quickly, there is a family in particular. I don't, I don't know, Bryce, can you click and press play? Can, yeah, okay. from here. So there's a family that already knows the tea about this place, so much so that in a show called Paris in Love, Paris is warned by her mom not to go and get married at the Greystone, and definitely not a part of Paris's wedding. So when you have the Hiltons refusing to set foot in the Greystone mansion because of that, then you know you have something. <laughs> 
real quickly, there is a book out called Ghosts of Greystone that is written by Cleet Keith. And Cleet Keith used to be an investigator for the LAPD. Part of my paranormal journey as a paranormal investigator, the number one thing that I was always taught is to go past the legends. Whenever you go into a haunted or supposed haunted location, yes, the legends are great to go based off of it, but what about the first-hand accounts? You have to think as an investigator, not as a paranormal investigator, but just as a detective. And what do detectives do? They go and talk to witnesses. They talk to eyewitnesses, and Keith did just that. So Keith, for several years, went to Greystone to speak with the staff the rangers, and anyone who participated in any film projects on this location. And he collected a total of 240 paranormal experiences from workers and from film workers as well who have worked in film and television on this property. That's 240 apparitions that they've seen. These are people who either believe in the paranormal and people that are just there just to do their job. And real quickly on the screen, one of the sidekicks that are that is on television, Chip Coffee, was one of the sidekicks that actually had the opportunity to do a walkthrough of the Greystone Manor. And his quote is, there are places all around the world that are incredibly beautiful to look at, but some also retain a dark underbelly. Greystone is one of those places, and Cleet Keith takes an up-close and personal look at the history of this magnificent estate. He meticulously documents the vast number of ghostly incidents that have occurred under its roof and on the surrounding property. The ghosts of Greystone are real, and they are dying to meet you. <laughs> so That's a pun. <laughs> is that obligatory when anyone talks about ghosts yes. to end any sentence with they're dying yes. to meet you? <laughs> so I had the opportunity back in 2020 to be given a private tour of the Greystone Mansion while it was under construction. It was going through major renovations. So I'm going to take you guys back to a little studio apartment in West Hollywood. <laughs> This is January 1st of 2010. I'm there underneath an umbrella. My sister with a hangover is taking this picture after I scraped her off my bathroom because it was New Year's. And my neighbor above me, just above that little ivy right there, happens to be this gentleman, Steve Clark. <laughs> he looks like this all the time when he's trying to tell me what he does. <laughs> oh, Steve. <laughs> oh, Steve. But... Steve was an awesome neighbor, and we would always cross paths, but we never really took the time to sit and talk. On this particular day, as synchronicities and the universe had aligned, Steve was coming out of his apartment to go visit friends, and he noticed me and my sister aiding a hangover. And he heard that my sister was visiting and offered a private tour of Greystone because he is the head groundskeeper and had been working there for 20 plus years and he was willing to give us a tour because the place was closed but he was willing to do this for me and my sister because I was such a great neighbor and <laughs> <laughs> he really truly loved the Greystone. I believe that he is retired, but he really loved that place so much so that this he was totally willing... sounds like a setup for a murder. It I'm does. <laughs> and we'll get there, trust me. So we we scheduled this tour the next morning at 8 a.m., that was the true crime right there. It was like 8 a.m. in the morning, you got to be there. And little did I know 
that this place was like five minutes away from our apartment, literally in walking distance. And it was a perfect morning. It was a dark and stormy morning. And no, that's not a ghost. That's actually my sister's thumb because she's still nursing a hangover. So, <laughs> so it was a dark and stormy morning and it was just us three. And already, like, myself and my sister, we are very sensitive to a lot of energy. There's a lot of stories that are connected to that. We are from New Orleans, so we've felt and heard things before all our lives. But we entered the Greystone and were greeted by the Grand Staircase. As we get to the landing, the landing, it kind of breaks off into two separate staircases. So we're going to enter what psychics have called the Vortex. So instantly, myself and my sister were like, we're feeling funny here. And Steve is like, you know, wide-eyed. Oh, you feel that? Okay, well, you know, this place is haunted. And we were like, tell us everything. Make this a haunted walking tour. We're here for this. And he said, okay, if you want to make it that tour, I'll definitely do that because I have plenty of experiences. But this is what is called the vortex. For those of you that don't know what a vortex is, in paranormal terms, a vortex is a doorway that separates our world from the spirit world. And a lot of times, it could be manipulated by our human minds. Granted, if you do scrying, where you communicate with spirit in the mirror, or if you create a psychomantium, which is a room filled with mirrors, you can create a vortex or this entrance into a different world. So psychics have come in and claimed that this is where a lot of the energy is coming in and out. And so we go to the second landing and we go into this room and instantly like we're getting goosebumps in this room. So according to Steve, paranormal scientists have investigated the house on many occasions and I'll never forget this quote that Steve said to me and my sister. Steve mentions, on a scale of 1 to 10, the gray stone is a 15 when it comes to hauntings. So he even mentioned to me and my sister that while he's been there for 20 plus years, he has seen a total of two rangers who were just hired, who worked their first night shift, quit on that first night shift because of the things that they would see. And to this day, the accounts are still growing from staff members and rangers. So Steve tells us that according to this room is the ghost of Emily. So this is a common ghost that people have seen. And Emily is, there's, no, there's not a lot of history about her. We just know that there was a little girl by the name of Lucy that was Ned's daughter. And Lucy would have friends that would come and stay the night. And this was Lucy's room. And this was supposedly the room where Emily, one of Lucy's friends, was peeking out through the window and had fallen to her death in the courtyard. This happened in 1936. Now, according to Cleet Keith's book, there was a documented death on the property of a child, but because the money that this family had, they tried to cover it and make it a little more hush-hush. However, the story was watered down because it turns out that not only have people been seeing the little ghost of Emily in this bedroom, and she's dressed in a white period gown, and she looks between the ages of seven and eight, but she's also seen on the roof next to the three-car garage. So this is where it gets really interesting. Steve was telling us a story about how on the property, the rangers would host a group of children that are part of a Catskills camping program. And there was one ranger in particular that showed up at 7 a.m. in the morning. He was by himself. He was going to make himself a cup of coffee. And then he hears what sounds like children screaming. 
he comes out and he sees a camp counselor and two children. And they're like, the little girl fell, the little girl fell. And he's like, what little girl? And the camp counselor is saying to him, well, they're saying that they saw a little girl on the roof. The girl looked at us, turned around, and walked the opposite direction, and she fell into the courtyard. And it was impossible because no one is there at that time. The children are just coming in. And if there were children on the grounds, how would they get into the house? And how would they have access to the second floor roof landing? So he goes around the building to investigate, and there's no little girl to be found. So he tells Steve about this incident. Steve's like, yeah, that's Emily. This is what people have claimed to have seen. And Emily is believed to be the friend of Lucy. There's two stories that Emily had fallen from the roof and the other story is that she had fallen from this window. Another thing, too, to, to kind of bounce off of the second floor hauntings is that Steve had brought out this boom box while we were in this room. <laughs> and I thought, great, he's gonna, he's gonna break dance. So, <laughs> cause it's like, there's the black eyed peas with a, <laughs> with a cassette player. So Steve comes in and he's giddy. He has this like boom box and my sister and like, right, he's gonna pop, drop and lock it, watch. He plays this tape. It's an incident that was recorded while filming of the National Treasure Book of Secrets. <laughs> And one evening, because the film crew heard about the haunted tales, the sound guy's like, watch this. I'm going to keep like, the, the speakers rolling. Watch. We're going to see what we can catch. So they decided to leave the sound on. And the next day, Steve and the men come in, and they press play. And Steve presses play on the cassette player. And it's just the sound of crashing, banging, things being dragged. It sounded like people were in there creating chaos, and it was so loud. But when they came in the next morning, everything was in its place. And Steve said, we don't know what happened. No one broke in, because if they were to break in, the alarm would have gone off. We would have been here immediately. And everything was in its case. I mean, this is like fifteen dollars to $30,000 worth of camera equipment. But why did we pick up banging you know, late in the in the wee hours. So that was something that was very disturbing, and he still has evidence of that that even Keith, in his book, documents. Mm -hmm. But we're going to move forward to another room. There's another room that's called the murder room, and as you've seen in the crime scene photographs... It's like a really subtle name. Yes. Like, not, Did I not, not what on the nose. Yeah. What, what would you call this blue? Like Murder blue, yeah, obviously. Like, <laughs> it writes itself. <laughs> So we entered this room, and myself and my sister, my sister couldn't even stand stand this room. She was like, I need to leave. It's, it feels really bad. And of course, Steve's face is like the picture. He's like, oh my God, I got to tell you, this is the murder room. And we're like, great, <laughs> wonderful. So according to Steve, this is the room where Ned and Hugh were found. And according to visitors that take tours, they have claimed to see a pool of blood appear on the floor. Steve said one night when he was doing his last rounds, he heard what sounded like two men arguing out of this room. And he comes in and the room is completely pitch black. Other visitors have also claimed and made complaints to the rangers and others on staff that they keep on hearing what sounds like workers arguing out of this room. And they're like, there's no one in that room. It's completely empty. So could it be possible that there is this residual haunting that is happening in this room? 
something that has been left behind and in certain times can manifest. The most interesting thing about these hauntings is that they don't have a set time. They just happen at any moment, which is really, really interesting. The other entity that has been seen around this place, this is a famous one too, it's the floating butler and or the butler with no legs. <laughs> Bryce? Like he's just trying to do his job. Like <laughs> just leave him alone. Like, whoa, so mean. So this is a this is actually an entity that has been seen by many, many people. It's been documented even by film crew. It's been documented by Steve himself. This was Steve's first paranormal experience. It was his first full body apparition. So he decided to take us through the spiral. It's like a back spiral staircase that takes you to the rec room in the bowling alley. And he brings us to the landing of the staircase. And I think we have a picture of it right here. And he's like, I was standing right here at the staircase. And I was doing my final walkthrough after an event. It was 1.30. And I'm standing right there on the landing. And I see this gentleman walk up. And he thinks it's probably someone from Catering Lost. So he calls out to him, but the man doesn't respond. And the closer that the man is coming up the steps, he is noticing that the man has no legs, but he's floating up towards Steve. But Steve can clearly, and I'll never forget it, could recognize every detail on this gentleman's jacket. It was like a white busboy jacket from the 30s and 40s with navy blue piping. The man had sandy blonde hair. He looked like he was in his 40s to the point where he can even see the wedding band on the man's hand. As the man approached the landing where Steve was, he looks at Steve and disappears. Along with Steve, Steve disappears as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> But what's really interesting about Steve's story is that he told one of the rangers and one of the rangers is like, yeah, I saw that. I, that's the floating butler. Like he's always seen there at different times. There was a paranormal investigator many years back who did investigate this location and he had noticed this apparition, except that this apparition appeared at 3 p.m., which is really interesting because in a residual haunting, and for those that don't know what a residual haunting is, it, it's derived from the theory of the stone tape theory. The label of the stone tape theory didn't come out until the 80s because there was a public access show in London called Stone Tape Theory. It was a series about a group of paranormal scientists that were going to investigate a castle. And the, this castle was playing this recording of a haunting of a woman that was constantly seen on the stone set staircase. And they called it the Stone Tape because it was this constant recording. So in the 80s, they bring out this term, Stone Tape, thus residual. So a stone tape or a residual haunting is just a constant recording of what the environment has absorbed, and that's what they think it is. But so isn't and and I I'm just wanting for further explanation for the audience. Are they saying that the the energy then is stored in the stone of the building, and that's why so many of the older buildings, like castles, yeah, have these replay at certain times of the day or night. Exactly, like it's not a real. It's not an intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's just an energy playing like a video recording. Is that, that accurate? Is, that is pretty accurate, yes. But this is what they believed at the moment while they were doing their research. Is like, this could possibly be residual, but if it's residual, then why is it happening at different hours of mm -hmm. the day? And then this one particular day, according to Steve, 
the apparition of the floating butler actually looks at the paranormal investigator and gives him a smirk and disappears. So many people believe that this butler is still working in the afterlife. Bryce, I know that how you feel. That is the real horror. Like, <laughs> I have to work when I'm dead? Like, no. that You will seance me back and fire me. <laughs> like, no, I can't. Fine, but you can't have my legs. Yeah, right. security. So right then and there, they decided, well, it, it, if it's like acknowledging the person, if it's happening in different hours, then it may not be a residual, could be very much intelligent. But based on what a lot of parapsychologists and scientists have picked up is a combination of so many things, granted, because gray stone is made with stone, could be absorbed into the stone and could be replaying certain incidents. As we go down the staircase, this is me and my sister, we were allowed to play a game of bowling, which was really, really cool. And if you see on the bottom, this is where the scene, the ending of There Will Be Blood was shot. And this is where Daniel Day-Lewis kills one of the characters. And we were like, we don't care, we want a bowl. And <laughs> I think the biggest ghost story for Steve while he was like bringing us to this area was him being haunted by the method acting of Daniel Day-Lewis. Bryce, we know how you feel about that. Yeah, <laughs> He's so, great. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so Daniel Day-Lewis, according to Steve, was constantly in character for his role of There Will Be Blood. It's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Look, he has Oscars and I don't, so like he's fine. <laughs> Everyone's like so horrified. Like He doesn't care what I think. It's fine. And Steve was very excited that he got to meet Daniel Day-Lewis, and he was... He was told that he had to call him by the character of his name throughout the whole time he was on set. So that's where the real haunting is. But the bowling alley is a really interesting area because this is where a lot of workers have claimed that they hear a lot of banging, they hear a lot of sounds, they hear what sounds like something is being, you know, thrusted against the wall. They've also heard what sounds like people are playing a game of bowling. And what's really interesting about this area, too, is that Steve pointed out that the bowling pins are the original pins from 1928. Mm. And there are very few of them that actually still exist. So that is something that is original to the mansion. Now, what people have seen in this area, too, is the spirit of a little boy. So they don't know who he is connected to or why he's there. But there was a story of a maid who was brought down there to clean up and prep for a film. And she came face to face with this little boy and she was trying to communicate with him, but the boy wouldn't speak back to her. He just smiled and disappeared. And some psychics believe that this is a reflection of a younger Ned Doheny. Maybe this is some sort of connection to his childhood. This is probably at points where he was his happiest, you know, being able to release some energy in this, particular portion of the mansion but according to records especially according to Keith's records like there's nothing in relation to this little boy and why he's here but he is often seen by staff and maintenance workers it was actually Daniel Day-Lewis in a wig the whole time <laughs> so incredible he's so t he's so talented wow the next room is the library room and card room. Now, a lot of people are wondering, well, has anyone else seen apparitions of Ned Doheny? And it is said that he does wander back and forth in the library. Steve had told us when he brought us here that there were a couple workers who noticed a man in a dark suit, pale skin, slick back hair, and a mustache 
And when he shows them the picture of Ned Doheny, they, they're like, yeah, that's the man I saw. Mm-hmm. And except that he's pacing and he disappears as he's pacing. So that could be something residual, but or it could be intelligent. But a lot of times people see him with his hands crossed behind his back, walking back and forth in the library as if he's trying to figure out how to hell to get out of the teapot dome scandal. <laughs> so <laughs> it was Mr. Doheny in the library with the mustache. With the mustache. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. <laughs> This is actually the card room, and immediately as I entered this room, I smelled what's—it smelled like cigar smoke. And I was like, "Was somebody smoking here from the night before? Was there a film shoot?" And Steve was like, "That's really interesting that you bring that up because a lot of people have claimed to smell smoke or cigar smoke in this room. So many believe that is connected to the Dokinis, but it's just this smell that just out of nowhere permeates and then disappears." Then that brings us to the final entity that has been seen by staff, workers, and visitors, and this is the tall shadow entity. Okay, but like how tall? (laughs) I'm like really single, so okay. He's not evil. I can sense it. (laughs) So towards the end of our tour, Steve tells me and my sister, I you know, you guys are sensing a lot of things. I just want you guys to walk up and down this hallway Mm -hmm. and tell me what you feel. So my sister and myself, we walk up and down this hallway. My sister can't even finish because she now all of a sudden has this massive migraine. And she has to stop and turn around and go to Steve. And I'm just walking. I'm like, whatever, okay. It feels a little off. But then I get this overwhelming smell of something rotting. Like it just smelled like rotting flesh. And I go back to Steve and my sister who are chatting. And he's like, that's actually very, very interesting because there was a death in this property of a maid. So way back in the day, there was like a head servant. She was like in charge of all the servants and all the workers, and she was just not the nicest person. And she made sure that everything was a, you know, was in tip-top shape in this mansion. If you were to step out of line or do something wrong or fold the napkin incorrectly, like you were going to get a beating from this woman. And her manner towards the servants was pretty physical. And there was a death on the property of a maid that had fallen asleep and didn't wake up because she had done something wrong that morning and her supervisor had hit her upside the head with an object. And this poor maid was like, I need to lay down, which we know is something you don't do. Well, she goes and lays down in her quarters and she never wakes up. I'm sorry. So this is a murder? (laughs) Wait, what? Don't hit your maids either. Like, yeah, don't fall asleep when you have a concussion, but don't hit your maids. Suffering already. So yeah, that that is, like I said before, this family has a lot of money and they have a lot of money to also make things go away or to keep Mm. things in the down low. Just like the poor, you know, death of Emily, we didn't hear much about it. There is documentation of those deaths, but there hasn't been any documentation in the papers, which is really, really interesting. But people who have traveled near the servants' quarters have felt a very unnerving sensation of a migraine coming on. They feel like someone is hitting them on the head and without even knowing the story. And that is something that my sister felt too. She felt this immediate migraine and when she left that area, it just kind of like dissipated, which was really interesting. People have also smelled like something rotting like flesh, but people have also seen this six foot, seven foot tall shadow figure, which they believe is connected to the head of the servants who is still there making sure that everything is still running in tip top shape. 
So those are pretty much the most commonly seen entities of the Greystone Manor. I highly recommend that you read Cleet mm-hmm. Keith's book of Ghosts of Greystone because he really dives deep into the research. He even mentions that the Historical Society of Beverly Hills, along with the Historical Society of the Greystone Manor, have confirmed its hauntings. They believe that this place is 100% haunted. But I want to end with this note in, in just conjunction with everything that we discussed. And this is from our friend Jeff Belanger, who is a haunted historian based out of the East Coast. History is like ghosts, and it demands to be remembered. And they demand to be remembered at the Greystone Manor. And that is our presentation. So the grounds of the Greystone are open almost every day. You can go. It's public, again, are owned by the parks because they do have the rangers there. And then once a month on the weekend, they have it open that you can go inside the home for tours. So definitely recommend and check it out. Otherwise, we cannot thank you guys enough for coming out to our show. (laughs) We could not have done this without Heritage Square Museum. They are so amazing. So, Anne, and... Huge round of applause to our sound guys. So our original sound guy canceled on us last night. Literally, the night before. (laughs) So it was wackadoodle time for us in the last couple, last 24 hours. But having said that, we're gonna wrap up and we are gonna hang out to be able to chat with you guys. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.